Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Your sibling the best. Dun, dun, dun. Better than all of the rest. Hey, better than anyone. Any driller killer I ever met. Oh, Troy. Troy, you know, how can I start this episode being that we are recording this mere hours after learning of the loss of the Iconic, a word used way too often by gay men, but in this case, it applies in so many ways. Tina fucking Turner. I I couldn't help myself. I had to give her a hat tip. You know, yes, absolutely. Tina Turner, one of the greats, one of the true greats, who I feel has earned the title of icon and has earned a a little jingle entry to Dark Knight of the Podcast tied to the Driller Killer from Slumber Party Massacre. I feel like... You know, you could expand that little tune you just wrote, and it could be perfect for Slumber Party Massacre 2, where, I mean, hell, Slumber Party Massacre 2 is right for a remake with a killer dressed in drag as like Tina Turner. It would be amazing. But yeah, no, we lost a great one. R.I.P. Tina Turner. I grew up with her. My parents loved her music. I grew up with them playing her albums before they would go out. So uh, very sad day for for the world, for music fans, but I think for the world because she definitely was an icon. She raised the bar high for a lot of artists that came after her. Yeah, you know, it really it hit me harder than I ever could have anticipated. A, a you know, a punch to the gut. Uh, but same, I grew up with a lot of her uh, in my life, both from you know my mother and through high school when I had a strange obsession obsession with her. Uh, when I did theater, like it was always just omnipresent. Tina Turner, so many great tracks, so many great moments. I mean, goddamn, Beyond Thunderdome, that chainmail ensemble, I can't get enough of it. Uh, the, we don't need, don't need another hero. Yeah. Um, but you know what? She simply, she simply was the best. And it'll be said a lot, but I think that was the proper term uh, just to send her off. I can't think of a better phrase. And surprisingly enough, Troy, I can't believe I'm saying this, but regarding this very special Patreon episode, and my last Patreon up through when I'm gone through the month of June, um, I am I am shocked to say that when it comes to slasher movies, I've got to say that the title we're covering today, in my opinion, shockingly enough, is also simply the best. And like, I wouldn't expect it. I wouldn't anticipate it. But watching this film brings me such a great deal of joy. Um, in, in ways that I don't often, I think, properly credit it. And it's it just continues to impress me every time I view it. And, and it's been a while since I've sat down and properly just watched this movie. And, and I concluded this viewing with such a sensation of satisfaction. And I've got to just jump into this by saying this is a movie that doesn't get enough love 
for what it is, which is a really effective slasher movie. So you you loved it. I I did. I I love this movie. I really love Roger. What? What's love got to do? Got to do with? Oh my it? god, Troy, you got me with a fucking musical cue. I thought we were done with. I was I was gonna go deeper too. I was uh, mountain high, valley <laughs> valley low. I was gonna I was gonna dive into her repertoire. Private uh, dancer, dancer for money. Like I've been working on it all day, but I didn't want to go too deep with the Tina Turner. But here we are. But yes, I uh, I mean, what's love got to do? It's got to do a lot with my feelings for this movie. And I know that you enjoy this film as well, but. I really don't know really how you feel about it. Like, I know you have a connection with Briggs Stevens through teacher shortage. I know you enjoy this film. You take a lot of influence from it, but I really don't know exactly where you stand with it. This film to me is one of the quintessential slasher films of the eighties for sure. I would point to 80, you know, if I had a young, young horror fan that was just now getting into 80 slasher films and wanted to know like what film should he or she watch that would really capture the essence of a of the 80s slasher era i would choose the slumber party massacre um it you're right it has had a major influence on me i adore this film uh it's probably it may have something to do with the fact that it is very much the first like true slasher film i ever saw in my entire life i you know, my parents were very liberal in terms of letting me watch horror movies. And in fact, the first movie I ever saw in the movie theater when I was like a little kid was Poltergeist. It scared the shit out of me, but I fucking loved it. And, you know, then it was kind of going into the 80s where VHS started to become a thing. And I don't know, I'm, I'm aging myself here tremendously, but I don't know if you remember when like VCRs first came out, they were super expensive. So you could literally go, like go to your mom and pop store and like rent a VCR for the night. And I remember doing that and like the first trip we ever made to rent a VCR to, and my mom let me and my brother pick out a movie to watch. It was the slumber party massacre based on that box art. And I watched it and I probably, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this film has everything that, I mean, this earned its R rating. Let's just put it that way. You know, right away in the first five seconds, you're seeing boobs. I was a little gay boy. It didn't bother me, but my parents, oh, yeah. you know, whatever. But I, I mean, this film, there is a, just a charm about this film. And, you know, we can, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the, the production and the writer of the film and stuff. And I think that really has a lot to do with it because this film is a very unique entry into the slasher genre because it is one of the few slasher films written and directed by a woman. Yeah. You know, it's shocking. It's truly shocking when you hear that because, when you look at this movie, it's very much shot through the male gaze. And maybe the fact that it was shot by a woman, it's almost like, I guess I can look at it somewhat tongue-in-cheek here. Um, they were so gratuitous with the nudity. I mean, Ariel is a plenty throughout this film. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling how many boobs you see in this movie. Um, but <laughs> one thing it manages to do is, is while it does really, like, let's be real, it's, it exploits these women, it does manage to give almost every single character you meet, no matter how small they may be, an element of charm and likability. A lot of slashers we see that fall into these same tropes 
uh, they often do so in sacrificing their character development uh, in the meanwhile. And this movie does not do that. And maybe it's because that this film was crafted by a, a female. Um, she still managed to ensure that the women in this movie, though heavily naked, <laughs> still managed to be fully thought out and, and realized characters and, and up to the finale. And as the movie does build and grow and, and uh, start to come to a very satisfying climax, these girls, at least the last one standing, the remaining several that were still with at that point, managed to step it up in a way that few slashers, I think, really truly let their final girls step it up. I mean, these girls... For the last few minutes of this movie, they're allowed to fully lose their shit on this guy. And it's extremely satisfying. And knowing that it was directed by a female, there's something even more satisfying about that, knowing that. You know, so uh, I'm excited to talk about this, you know, especially, you know, we're two gay men. So I like to think we can encompass a female mentality when we need to <laughs> enter the mind of a woman for a bit. But really, like, you know, for all of the, uh, the, the tit shots and excessive amounts of nudity throughout this movie... I don't mind it because I think it's really a, a quite a strong, almost feminist piece of cinema in a way. Well, it was written by uh, Rita Mae Brown, who was a notorious feminist, um, and she wrote the script. The original script was called Sleepless Nights. I'm sure anybody that knows basically about this film knows everything I'm saying right now. The script was called Sleepless Nights. It was supposed to be a parody of slasher films. Roger Corman got a hold of it, and they, you know, he hired a director, Amy Jones, and Instead of filming it as a parody, as the script is, they took it very seriously. And because of that, the film does have just that really weird like tone to it, where at times the humor is definitely at the forefront, but it's also like paired with this gratuitous violence and this horrific killer. So it, it, it just creates just a very weird, unique tone and atmosphere. You know, and they did go, they get, they filmed a straight serious slasher flick, even though, like I said, it was written to be a parody of slasher flicks. Uh, But, you know, I mean, yeah, you're right. The characters are strong. Also actually a rarity in the slasher annals because it does give us three final girls instead of one. Uh, The one is kind of useless that what's her name? Courtney. We'll talk about her. I, I, I'm confused by this character. I don't know if she's supposed to be 12 or 54. I really don't. <laughs> I'm saying, like, she goes from looking like a child with like a with an angel's parting to looking like fucking Demi Moore in God, <laughs> with striptease. Like, I'm, yeah, she looks right. like the, uh, Donna Wilkes from Angel in the second. Oh, movie. my God. She's painted like a whore for a chunk of this Sucking, on, I, sucking I mean, on a giant I, lollipop provocatively. It's, <laughs> it's odd. It's odd. But a child, like very much supposed to be a child. It is strange. But I overall, a lot of the character choices made throughout the course of this film are better than I would anticipate from, from a film from this era, uh, from a slasher film from this era especially. And I do think like, you know... Uh, when you when you compare this up against other films that kind of follow the same formula, like... Um, I don't know what what's the what's the one that we watch with the goddamn girl with the short brown hair that we hate so much. Sorority House, Sorority House Massacre, right? I, I, they all start to blur together. Sorority House Massacre. When you compare this up against a Sorority House Massacre, I mean, I'm sorry, like there's no fucking comparison. Like Sorority House Massacre, for the most part, is is 
pretty boring. I mean, there are a few characters that we liked, but overall, there are a lot of moments through Sword House Massacre where we're just following that that sad girl with <laughs> with a sad backstory, and and like you don't really get anything near the level of character development you would get here. So I'm I'm kind of surprised that this film, when you think of like the poster art and all of the things that are used to define this movie, which really puts it to be so gratuitous. When you sit down and analyze it as a piece of crafted cinema, it's actually like pretty damn well made across the board. The cinematography is pretty good to look at. The score is fine. The acting is rather strong. And the locations are rather effective. It's lit great shadow play all over the place. Like they clearly knew what they were doing. And the gore above all else is pretty fucking impressive and better as the movie goes on too. Like the executions of a lot of the kill sequences of this movie are truly well handled. It's it's not just a fun movie from the eighties. It's a well-crafted one at that. Oh yeah. It's definitely, it's competently made. There are some great shots. There are some, um, great effective chase scenes and the acting across the board is pretty, it's pretty strong guys. If you haven't guessed, we're talking about, 1982's, I, I want to say classic slasher in my mind, The Slumber Party Massacre, which was actually re- very recently remade for sci-fi. Did you see that remake, Roger? I have not seen that remake. Okay, check it out. Honestly, it's actually pretty good. And you can tell that the director, who was also a woman who directed the remake, knew the original film quite well because there are a lots of little nods to the original film. Much like, you know, the directors of of Scream 5 and 6. You can tell that you, whether you like those films or not, you, you can tell the directors know the films that came before it. It's very similar. So check it out. It's actually worth a watch. It's on Shudder as well. It's right up there with this one. I would check it out. It's a worthy remake, honestly. The ending goes a little wonky, but I think you'd get a kick out of it. Okay. I, I, I will definitely see it. I will definitely yeah. watch it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one, you know, it's... I mean, you're not going to get a deep plot here. This is your. This is as simple as a plot you can get for a slasher film. And basically, it's an escaped killer goes on a killing rampage. He gets fixated on a group of girls while they're having a slumber party and kills them off one by one. That's as deep as you're getting with this. Don't expect that there's going to be some deep message here. That's what you're getting. Um, right away, the film opens up in a nice suburban neighborhood where the little paper boy is delivering papers. And we right away are privy to the fact that Russ Thorne has escaped because he throws the paper on the uh, the lawn and we get a, a zoom in shot that says mass killer of five Russ Thorne has escaped. And they don't let you forget it through the whole film either. Like they're constantly on the radio. Like first thing you've got the shot of Trish. She's laying in bed. You got organ music blaring. <laughs> like and this movie really hits hard with the organ music right off the bat as it scans over this very like calm suburban neighborhood. And it's not really ominous footage, but the music is sure, sure fucking ominous. So it's like set in some kind of tone here. But she rolls over in bed. The radio instantly starts talking about Russ Thorne. And she turns it out off without even thinking about it. And this is kind of like an ongoing thing. There's a few moments where you have some of the girls who, like in a TV in the background, will be talking about Russ Thorne. Car radio will be, you know, talking about Russ Thorne. And they always turn it off right before it really like hits home exactly what's going on but it's always kind of looming in the background and i like that they did this i think like you know especially for again like you just said the story being rather thin i mean so is halloween 
it's just a different approach to the material. And in that, they, they told you, you know, what was happening. Like, Michael Myers is escaping from the asylum. Here, they don't really show it to you, but they do feed you that information. I think that's why this movie is so short, is because overall, like, one thing they really do skim by is how he got out and started doing his thing, killing people. Um, but overall, I don't think you really need it in this film. Like, the character is definitely a defined individual like you know exactly who this guy is and you actually get to hear him speak as the movie goes on but i don't think you know, need to know much more about russ thorne other than the fact that russ thorne just really fucking loves killing people oh he loves it that's his whole i mean yeah it probably one of the creepier killers to come out of the 80s and what's interesting is he's not masked at all and generally i would hate I don't say it hate, but I, I prefer a masked killer in a slasher film. Generally, they don't work when they're unmasked because it just it makes them not scary. Like think about Prom Night remake. We talked about that. This That guy was gorgeous. He was not scary. OK, Russ Thorne is fucking scary. The way he moves, the way he's always lurking, his his almost childlike voice that he speaks to, speaks with in the end of the film is fucking creepy. I think this is probably the the finest example of crafting a killer in a slasher film that's maskless and making him extremely effective. Well, and even at first, like when you first see him, he's not all that intimidating. It's not like he's this big towering, like muscular, like Tyler Maine in Rob Zombie's Halloween. Like, no, like this guy is kind of like he's like kind of short. Uh, kind of awkward, big moon saucer eyes. He looks crazy. Um, but then as you kind of, like, as you follow him throughout the film, you see how relentless he is. And you do start to realize, like, he's crazy, but he's also, like, calculated. It's not like he's just, like, out there cutting people up without rhyme or reason. He's very, like, calculated and thought out, executing his plans. Um, so there's a level of intelligence that comes with the character. And when you get to see that on display, he does become significantly more effective. Overall, I'd say the movie does a really good job of just as it goes on, as it moves, as you move through the story, it, it picks up, it gets better. And I think that's one of its saving graces. Like the first few kills aren't necessarily the best kills in the movie, but just you wait, there's some things coming along that are really fucking impressive. And same with him as a killer in general. First few times I see him, he really isn't all that effective. But by the end by the end of the movie, when you get to the finale of the film and you see him just all out screaming at the top of his lungs, missing hands and holding his guts in, I mean, he's actually quite terrifying. And I gotta give the movie that. You're exactly right. I don't like a maskless killer either. I prefer them to be covered. I want to know the whodunit aspect of the film. And if you remove that, that takes something away from it at times. But in this case, it ends up working in the movie's favor. I mean, he is effective with or without a mask. Agree, agree. So in Trisha's room, she gets out of bed. And of course, right away, this is like the first 30 seconds of the film, she's topless. She takes off her her top. We see those boobs in all their glory. And she puts on her her sundress to get ready for school. And, uh, you know, there's this moment where she starts, like, throwing her, like, stuffed animals and Barbies away. Like, she's putting them in, the, in a trash bag. I mean, I guess I get what they were going for. It's like, oh, she's waking up and she's deciding she's not a child anymore, which is very fitting for what she's going to go through that evening, right? She's going to have to, she's going to have to become strong and mature. So, a little bit of, of symbolism there, I guess. But uh, her mom calls down for her because her parents, of course, are going out of town for the weekend. 
and you know her her mom is telling her you know oh, the the phone numbers on the refrigerator blah 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 mr content will be home all weekend to look after you girls clearly their gay neighbor clearly their gay neighbor his hawaiian shirt his his bleach blonde hair but he seems like a nice guy he seems like his he's um well-intentioned well his willingness to allow them to smoke weed after discovering it basically being like you girls have fun i won't tell i'm the sensible gay neighbor that everybody wishes they had living next door to them i i did really wish truly wish that he would be involved in the finale in some way because you get a couple of scenes with them but then all of a sudden he's killed off pretty quickly like this character is lingering but i really wanted upon my initial viewing for the mr mr content to somehow be like you got the, the three girls and you got the homosexual man working together to get shit done but we're deprived of it he is quickly off quickly quickly she throws her her toys in the in the trash and someone unknown grabs the barbie doll from the trash and the next scene is the school where two boys, Jeff and Neil, who become fairly, I don't want to say important, but fairly prominent to the plot. They're cuties for 80s boys. You know, they're 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 definitely cuties. They but they start harassing this poor telephone woman who's just trying to do her job. What te- what telephone service employee looks like <laughs> this fucking busty woman? Like that's what <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sorry, but like, if, out of all the things in this movie that don't work for me, it's that this curvaceous, buxom blonde is working up on a ladder fixing telephones. Like, there ain't no way you're going to sell me on this. But somehow this is the job this woman selected. And she's walking around in skin-tight pants with her boozles all knocked up to her chin. <laughs> These boys are just drooling all over her. And they go right on up to this broad and they're like you like younger men and she's like you kids do not look legal so no (laughs) you must be what 16 years of age but she laughs it off casually as you do when you're approached by teenagers Uh, and as they like walk away she's just like looking on like a smile on her face being like you boys and this broad's just grabbed from inside her van and without warning and just pulled right in and like you get the first real kill you get here it's it's actually very smartly executed it, it, it it's fun it gives um it gives you the viewer an idea of of just how much personality this movie is going to have because you see this busty block she's in the window of the van slamming on the glass screaming nobody hears this broad screaming Nobody hears the goddamn power drill that this fucker's about to turn on either. Uh, and somehow he manages to kill this poor Froline woman <laughs> in this van without anybody noticing at all. I don't buy it. You've got to suspend some disbelief here. But it's a, it's a fun fucking opening. I'm going to give it that. Surprising. Yeah. I mean, she's the first one to be off. It's, it's quite a surprise when he pulls her into her van. Uh, definitely parallels Randy's death in Scream 2. I don't know if you got that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know if you got that vibe or not, but it's definitely very, very similar. But yeah, this poor buxom blonde telephone woman is dispatched <laughs> with a drill to the forehead. What what telephone company is allowing some woman to go around looking like that? Like that's a pro- that is problematic. And you're going to send her to a high school of all places <laughs> oh, with with God. horny teenage boys looking wearing those tight ass pants with her her pants are right up her ass crack. I mean, this is the '80s. It's a different it's a different time. I got to keep that in mind. I guess beautiful women were fixing telephones, and I just I was too young to know it. Um, but one thing to acknowledge about this scene. 
is overall, I mean, it's relatively bloodless. I mean, you see a little bit of blood splatter against the glass and everything. You see this, the, the, the power drill rev up, but you really don't see a lot. And, and that's something you get from a, the first few kills in general. Um, they don't show a lot of the gore right away. You get some blood, but they really don't show a lot of gore or penetration. And it's almost as if like you start to suspect they're not capable of pulling it off. And I really have got to, again, acknowledge and give credit to this movie that they saved a lot of the best for last with this. The movie has you at first thinking that it's going to be not as gory as it actually is, but it really pulls out all the stops when the finale comes along. I, I really like the way they handle the kills because they build up. They become more and more. They're bigger and bigger. They're taking more time. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's really well done. Well, and it's also interesting. Yes, you know, you could say it on one hand that the women are exploited in this film because of the the sexual aspect of it with a lot of the, I mean, it, it was, it had to have been a requirement that if you're a female in this movie, you were going to go topless period. And it's, it's gratuitous as we'll discuss as, as the, uh, the shower scene comes up here real quick, but like, think about the film though. On one hand, yes, the women are exploited, but then think about the women who are killed in this film. Their deaths are all very tame. A lot of times they're off screen. It's the guys in this film who get the, the gory deaths, Mr. Content, uh, the two the two boys, Jeff and Neil, the killer at the end of the film. Most of the deaths, the females are not shown. Yeah, you know, that's very valid. Um, yeah, I, I'd even think about that. Like normally when you think a lot about a lot of these movies, the the women are really getting like the more gratuitous kills, the sequences of them being really drawn out, hanging off of meat hooks or whatever it is. And yeah, that's a really a good, a good thing to point out here, Troy, because that's valid. All of the kills that really take their time and linger and make you feel like something, make you like wince, they are mostly all men being killed. Well, now we go into the school and there's a girls basketball game during gym class and you just get a prolonged basketball scene that I could give a fuck less about. Really? I don't, I hate basketball. Uh, and this one goes on for way too long, but I guess the whole point of it is to show that Diane, who we'll get introduced to here quickly, is or was like the star basketball player until new girl Valerie comes along. And Diane is upset that Valerie is getting accolades from the teacher because she's such a good basketball player. And in fact, she storms away and says, teacher's pet, when when Valerie makes a shot and the teacher praises her. I'm like, okay, teacher's pet. That's quite the insult. But after this basketball game, they do hit the showers. And, you know, this is a scene that is, I mean, you want to talk about, I mean, the camera is sole purpose during this scene is to zoom in on asses and tits. Oh my God, the shower, man. It just keeps going and going and going, these little fannies. And in fact, like when you get, when the camera kind of enters into the shower room, you hear a girl say, I think your tits are getting bigger. And everyone's like, who, me? And then you get Brink, lovely Brink Stevens there in the shower with her raspy voice talking about liking basketball because she likes to see the guys in the short shorts. One thing this movie does manage to do capture really well is like the casual banter between girls. There's several scenes where they kind of just let the girls ramble. It's some of the best acting in the film. And this happens a few times. Again, probably because the female writer, you know, female director, they just get how girls interact. For being such a sexually gratuitous film with so many knockers in it, it does a really good job of capturing authentic moments between young women. And it almost makes it feel less gratuitous because, yes, they're very naked, but 
they managed to fill that time and fill that space with with real human interactions between these girls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of little moments in the shower scene. Yes, you're seeing a lot of tits and ass, but there's also lots of little moments like uh, Trish watching Valerie shower and you know nobody's really paying attention to valerie and trish like goes over to valerie and tells her that she played some great basketball and then you get a moment where you know trish and diane are out of the shower and trish tells diane that she's going to invite valerie to her party uh and diane's like why it's supposed to be just you know the old gang there's this moment where they're like in the dressing room they're changing trish asks diane why she doesn't like valerie like what do you why why don't what do you have against Valerie? And Diane's response is, she drinks too much milk. Diane's motivation for despising Valerie is completely unwarranted and makes Diane seem like a total cunt. Um, but in the in this great scheme of cunts, Diane definitely isn't the worst cunt that we've ever seen in this film. I mean, she's, she's bitchy. She is kind of stuck up. There's even a moment here where Trish calls her out for it. And she's like, well, the best people are. You know, the best people are snobs. It's the best line in the movie, Diane, you're a snob. Hey, only the best people are, you know? Yeah, and 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 she kind of owns that about who she is, and it's not so aggressive, such an aggressive trait, that it's the only thing she has going for her. Like a lot of girls that we see that fall into the bitchy role, she's fully defined as a character. She's not vile. She's not like harmful with her dislike. She's not like a Chris Harginson and Carrie, right? She's She just... She even says, she's like, I don't really like to get to know new people. It's not my fault she moved here, you know? I mean, she's she's kind of a bitch, but she's definitely not um, like harmful or hurtful. Even though when Trish goes to, to, to ask um, Valerie if she wants to come to their party, Trish is like, oh, no, I can't. She runs away, and they realize that that poor uh, poor Valerie heard the, the conversation. Uh, the group is now leaving the school and Linda played by Brink Stevens, who I've had the pleasure to work with twice on Mrs. Claus and teacher shortage um, says that she has to go back to her locker to get a book that she forgot because just to study that weekend for a test. So as the group is walking, Linda turns around and goes back into the building. We see that the killer is still sitting in the van and he's watching Linda run back into the building. And then there's this really cool like aerial shot when the group walks by the dumpster. We see that the um, the dead telephone woman is in the dumpster with the drill hole in her forehead. <laughs> it's probably the worst gore effect in the film. Uh, and again, if you're watching this for the first time, this might almost be kind of a turnoff because her face is like looking directly at the camera. Um, and you see that like the wound in the middle of her head is not at all like a, a like a hollow hole. You know, it is like a, a makeup effect. And it, it just it doesn't look anywhere near as good as everything else that comes after it. But the shot's so well executed, like that pan over as they walk by the dumpster, the reveal of the body, the fact that they kind of tie it all back in together. Um, I can forgive it. I I can forgive this like one bad gore effect uh, (laughs) for the fact that it's just a well-executed moment. Like I really love that shot. You're right, of them walking past the dumpster to reveal her. It's well thought out. So... Linda goes back to the school. She runs into the coach, Coach Jan, who tells her, you better hurry up because they're going to lock the building up. So Linda runs into her locker, gets her book. And on the way out, she realizes she can't get out. She tries multiple doors. And I'm wondering, like, this is a pretty big high school. There would be custodians around. Trust me, I've worked in schools long enough to know that, like, you're never, this would never happen. There was, there was going to be somebody in that building that was going to 
hear a drill and hear a girl scream. But the way they they make it seem like it's abandoned, like she's the only one in the building and she's been locked in. But there's this moment then when she tries to open one of the doors and she can't get it open. And we see that the killer comes is coming, approaching her from behind. And this is the moment where he gets behind her, starts his drill. She turns around and screams and he gets her right in the arm or in the shoulder with the drill. And she takes off running and we get a pretty good, a pretty good chase scene. You know, she runs through the school. He's chasing after her. She goes into the locker room and and locks herself in, in a room by the showers and the killer comes in and there's this like tense moment of like cat and mouse where she is hiding in this room. He is walking through the showers. She notices that her shoulder is bleeding profusely causing a puddle of blood to to run onto the floor and go kind of creep underneath the door and ultimately that's what kills her because the killer looks down and sees the blood and tries to get into the room and the door's locked so he drills it open and we just hear her scream we don't see her death we just hear her screams throughout the the school building and like i said Where's the custodian? Someone would hear this. There's a, a few moments throughout the course of the film where you have a kind of a similar setup where someone notices blood creeping out from under a door. Or, you know, like people are almost hinted uh, to the fact that certain people have been killed, but they never quite catch it. I do like that her fate here is simply given away from the fact that she's bleeding so much that she can't stop it from, you know, seeping out from under the door. Um, and her, the moment like that he opens the door and like, you know, finds her there and she's revealed. It's really quite tragic. I mean, she can't do anything, but just sit there and scream. And uh, it is a cutaway, but it's such a great build up to it. If anything, I wish it was a little bit longer because we all like a good chase sequence and the, the space that they use here at the school, you know, the inti- inside of the high school and the showers and everything makes for a really effective interior location and they don't overuse it. You know, once you go to the house, you're at the house, you don't really go back to the school at all. So they, they spend enough time here that they really take full advantage of this space, um, at least within the showers and so forth. But God, I would have loved to have seen even a little more in this location because it's really just it's handled very well. It's shadowy. It's dark. When he's creeping through those showers, it's genuinely quite scary. Uh, and, and he is quite effective in these moments. Oh, yeah. 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 Like I said, they do a really good job of like making the school seem isolated. Yeah, I like this scene a lot. Um you know, if you've seen teacher shortage, folks, you know that Brink Stevens is in teacher shortage. And I crafted her entire death sequence in teacher shortage after her death scene in this film. So we, the, the only difference is she's a teacher now instead of a student. and She's being chased through the hallway. I even have the moment in teacher shortage, Roger, where she's hiding in the bathroom stall and the killer has stabbed her in the shoulder and the blood is dripping on the floor of the bathroom. You know, she's hiding on the toilet in the bathroom stall and the she, what she thinks is the killer comes in and she's trying to wipe the blood off it was all very deliberate very very homage to her death scene in slumber party massacre and in fact when i wrote the script and sent it to her i told her if she wouldn't do it then i was just not i was just going to cut that scene from the movie because i wanted it to be an homage to her particular death scene in in this film yeah oh i i remember watching that the first time and really being like oh like this is clearly a, a hat tip to the you know to the original film and and very strategically played into the story certain shots are very very reminiscent of it um i very much enjoy that you did that 
Um, because you know, once once a movie does that with an actor like that, you can't really reuse that trope. So that's that's really cool that you have that with her with Brink that she you know recreated that moment now you know, post-millennium that you that you got to have that cool, awesome chasing with her that is clearly such a loving homage to the original material. It definitely was a loving homage. And she had a blast filming. And we had a blast with it. Um, so you get a scene where, like, this motorcycle dude drops Trish off at her house. And then poor Diane's walking home by herself. And we get this, like, POV of a car following her with heavy breathing. <sighs> As you know, and then as Diane turns down this like alleyway, the the van stops and this person gets out and like is going up behind her, breathing heavily, grabs her, but she's able to like fight back. She grabs the guy and flips him on his back. And it turns out just to be her boyfriend, John Minor, um, who looks like he's about 60, not attractive at all. He is one of the doughiest, most unappealing gingers I've seen in a movie in a while. And I like a ginger, but this guy, there's something popping fresh about this gentleman. And he's only in a few scenes in the movie, but both times you see him, he's extremely unpleasant, both to look at and just like <laughs> overall, like his character in general. He gets like very pushy about sex later on, a little too pushy. Um, he doesn't have any really positive defining traits other than that he could be manhandled and beaten by a woman easily. So I don't think he's much of a threat. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, again, I don't think you'd see a moment like this with a lot of other slashers from the era where she easily overpowers him, pulls off a rather badass, like, self-defense trick and has the guy on his back and she's like as she walks away she's like make sure you take care of that back like she's she's such like a little bitch about it i like that yeah well and there's you can tell like for some reason like she's head over heels for this guy like later on in the movie she's like hey gorgeous and i'm like are you looking at the same person i am this is troubling <laughs> um but yeah he wants to know like um if she can get together later and she's like, no, I'm going to the Trisha's party and I don't know if I can get out of it. He's like, well, I'll come by later and we'll see what we can do. Um, Coach Jana gets home and um, as she's walking up to her, her door, a drill bit just comes through the door randomly and she like freaks out. And of course the door opens and it's her lesbian handy woman <laughs> i was like he's gonna beat me to it because I, I really wanted to just call out the fact that this woman is a blatant lesbian i mean like to say this film is an lgbtq centric it would be wrong clearly this lesbian is rachel's lover oh um, it has to be these two she's are building her bookshelves <laughs> she's like your bookshelf will be ready by wednesday i'm like i'm sure it will be i bet you chopped down the tree yourself like <laughs> this the short cropped haired lesbian woman pleasant i mean what a pleasant lesbian and, and then you got that other the gay neighbor that dies way too soon uh, at least there's some great queer characters in this film they're not saying it but you know it's intended just by the way these fuckers are dressed and their hairstyles of choice. Yeah. Oh, God. These two. You two, you know these two have eaten each other out several times. Uh, uh, Coach Jan is like, what are you doing here? Oh, I'm putting in your peephole. And then do you notice she, she closes the door after Pam is her name. Pam is this handy lesbian's name. She's like, okay, see you later, Pam. And she closed. The peephole wasn't even in properly. It looks like it's about ready to fall out of the door. So... <laughs> <laughs> this is a lesbian who can't properly put a peephole in. Well, I mean, okay, it's a lesbian character, but I doubt the actress herself was. <laughs> she's putting in, she's putting in peepholes, building bookshelves. I... She's trying. I mean, I bet she does quite a good job with like a deck. I can see this woman 
really crafting a fine deck or like building like I don't know a small miniature rocking chair um <laughs> for a child. She's wearing a tool belt, she's wearing a flannel shirt. She's dressed like Tim Allen from Home Improvement. I mean, <laughs> but a I wa- lesbian. I wanted more of this woman and, you know, yeah, I- don't leave me with these unanswered questions. Don't leave me knowing not knowing what happened to Pam <laughs> when her lover is violently murdered by the end of the film. Oh. That that torrid love affair, I'm sure Pam to this day is is still in mourning about the woman she lost. I would be too because that Coach Jana is pretty cool. She I is. like Coach Jana, yeah. So we go back to Trisha's house and she's on the phone with Diane, but she hears someone walking around her house, or she thinks she hears someone in her house. So she gets up and investigates and sees that her front door is open. So she shuts it, sits down, plays the piano for a bit, and then we see like a figure stomping through her house and she hears it. And gets up and tries to run outside, but it's just Mr. Content. He just came into the house to check on her because he saw the front door was open. Another way you know that this is clearly their their trusted gay neighbor whom they love um, is the fact that this man is stalking around throughout the inside of their house. And then after she's startled, she's not like, oh, my God, what are you doing in my house? He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me sit you down and calm you. Like, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure that she was not startled at all when she found out who it was because it's their lovely gay neighbor. Uh, and her mother, I feel, is like best friends with him. Oh, probably. And he's wearing a sensible Hawaiian shirt again. I mean, he's he is a pleasant gentleman. And we cut back to the coach's house, and she's making a quesadilla. That, that looks, <laughs> shaving the cheese, shaving like the shaving cheese. it right off. Yeah, I'm like, that's a good. And she drops her wine glass on the floor, and then she hears a noise, goes to investigate. We get the we get the cliche cat in the closet jumps out of the closet scene. Oh, you mean Muffin? Muffin the cat. Is it that Fitting. funny? Yes. I was going to say Muffin. Yeah. Okay. We muffin, get. Muffin. Who's got the Muffin? Coach Jan has got the Muffin and it's Pam's Muffin that she's got. I'm sure that's Pam's cat too because you know how lesbians they start moving in with each other. Isn't They probably know each other for three days. She's already installing peepholes. Yeah, they're putting in peepholes and, and uh, building bookshelves because Pam's moving in and she needs a place for her book collection. I don't <laughs> for her book collection on lesbian history and lore. Um, yeah, you know, this movie boasts a lot of moments of people hearing sounds and suspecting things and then it's never what ends up what they think it's going to be. But everyone in this movie is prepared to fight. Like anytime there's ever a moment here where someone hears something, they immediately like arm themselves with a knife or a piece of glass and they start just stalking through the house, which is exactly what I do when I am in moments like this. Like if I hear something and I'm home alone, I grab a knife. I'm walking through the whole house. I know you've done this too, Troy. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I guess that's the, the, a really another key factor in letting you know that this film was directed by a woman because the women in this film aren't stupid there's not a lot of like really dumb decisions made in this film the dumb decision the the dumb decisions made in this film are actually made by the guys not the girls it's quite an interesting like little flip on slasher conventions there's other moments of the film that are definitely typically what we would see guys doing but the girls are doing it um the guys in this film are just kind of I don't know. What do you want to say? Like weaklings? They're pretty useless. I think the girls are portrayed as being sharper and quicker than the boys. Like the boys, if anything, are kind of oogling over the girls. But I like how like as as soon as the guys are like kind of welcomed into the situation a little bit later, it's not like they 
instantly become super creepy. If anything, they kind of just hang out like I would imagine teenagers would. Um, the character dynamics in this film are really well handled. Nobody makes a really strange, unexpected, or bad choice in general with any of their character choices, except for Diane dating that doughy ginger guy. That's a bad choice. But other than that, I mean, I'm just kind of surprised at how realistic and believable most of the decisions that are made in this movie actually are. So speaking of the guys, Neil and Jeff are walking um, at night and Jeff wants to go scare the girls. He's like, hey, we should stop by the girls' house and scare them. And 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 Neil's like, no, they'd beat the shit out of us. He he even acknowledges that these girls don't are ones not to be messed with. But as they're talking, this whole scene's purpose is to show them walk right by the white telephone van that the broad was killed in earlier. So we know that Russ Thorne is in this neighborhood stalking these unsuspecting girls. Valerie, who just happens to live like next door to Trish, looks out her window to see that the girls, Jackie and Kim are showing up for the slumber party and immediately, you know, Trish answers the door and Kim comes charging in with beer. And what she says is wowie Maui. She's like, look what I got for my brother. I got a case of beer and this wowie Maui. And of course, Mr. Content walks in as Trish is trying to tell Kim not to say anything. Mr. Content appears and he's like, Oh, well, you know, Trish, I won't tell your parents if you don't tell them I scared the crap out of you, okay? Go easy on the Maui Wowie. A few things to acknowledge about this. First of all, I really like how the neighbor handles this. I like that he's chill about it. I like that he lets the girls smoke their weed. This seems very believable to me. Um, Again, the dynamic between the girls is really likable. It's not like there's any huge animosity between anybody. They all just kind of get along. Like, you know, a lot of times you have, like, there's always, like, people who have some, like, beef with each other or some strange, like, hostility between characters. With these girls, they all seem to just, like, be pretty chill, pretty happy. They just seem like normal, average teenage girls. They do a really good job of depicting that. One of my favorite choices this film makes is to establish at this point moving forward that there really are two Actually, technically three, if you count Rachel, you know, the teacher, because she kind of has her own side story here. But two focal stories going on. Valerie, whom we've been following, you know, to a certain extent over the course of the film, is is really introduced at this point moving forward. It's introduced as a major player. Up until this point, she's been kind of an afterthought. She's been referenced. We met her a little bit during the basketball game. But now we realize that she's actually one of the focal characters. And it it launches into this whole secondary story of what's going on at Valerie's house. As everything's starting to transpire next door at Trish's, Valerie kind of has her own thing going on. And it really nicely intertwines. It starts to weave together and and come together as one cohesive storyline. It's one of my favorite choices the film makes. You don't have a lot of movies that give you really two focal stories with focal female characters to concentrate on. And it makes for plenty of moments moving forward where you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know really who is truly disposable. And you kind of question everything that's going to happen at this point, because you're not exactly sure, am I really following the group of girls in this house? Or am I really actually following Valerie and what's going on with her story? Uh, Really smart choice. 
and how they executed this, it makes for a lot of suspense building up as this movie progresses. Well, what what is happening at Valerie's is that she's babysitting her sister, Courtney. Yeah, like we talked about earlier, Courtney is an interesting character because I'm not sure like how old she's supposed to be. Like sometimes she acts like she's like seven years old, but then she looks like she's 12. But by the end of the film, she looks like she's 45. It's very odd, you know, but they do have a lot of fun interactions together. She's making um, Kool-Aid for Courtney and Courtney comes in and wants to know why she wasn't invited to the party. And Valerie informs her, hey, I was invited. I just decided to stay home and take care of you. And then the phone rings and it's a boy for Courtney and Courtney gets on the phone and she's like, hi, Gordon. Like, I can't think of a less attractive name than Gordon. That moment makes me think so much of Jan Brady. <laughs> like when she and Marsha uh, in the, in the Brady bunch movie where she's like on the phone, she's like, hi, George, like George glass. Like it's such a George glass moment. And this, this sister Courtney, she's a pill. She's definitely a pill, but she and her sister do share a few moments that I actually really like coming up. And once things get into action, she actually makes a couple of decisions that I'm kind of surprised with. She's super fucking annoying. She keeps leading to these fake out moments where you get really pissed off at her because you keep thinking she's fucking dead. She's got to be dead. She keeps disappearing. But her character does manage to make a couple of decisions towards the end of the movie that actually I don't completely hate this character. She's just obnoxious. She's obnoxious. The character of Courtney returns for Slumber Party Massacre 2, played by Crystal Bernard. So the character does come back for the sequel. If you've ever seen Slumber Party Massacre 2, you know that. But yeah, interesting character. In this film, she yeah, she's a little annoying. Uh, we go back to the to the slumber party house where the girls are smoking the weed and and kind of kind of trash talking Diane. Jackie thinks that Diane has a big mouth. Trish's thing with Diana. She, I'm, I'm not, Trish. I'm with you here. Trish cannot understand what Diane sees in that John Minor. Kim's response is, "Well, maybe she sees what we can't see," insinuating he has a big dick. I'm sorry. I don't care how big his dick is. I'm not getting on this doughy, homely man. It's just not happening. Oh no! And like the, the, the conversation about his penis is not appealing whatsoever. I don't want to picture what this man's penis looks like. Um, he does look very sweaty every time he's revealed on camera. Um, yeah, there's just nothing sexy about this guy. But for some reason, man, goddamn Diane's having hot and passionate phone sex with him. She can't get enough of this guy. Her boo boo. <laughs> Uh, her boo-boo, yeah. They hear a noise and she go. they go into the kitchen and realize that she left her her coffee pot on the burner and, it, and it, the glass cracked. And then they look out the window and you see Diane is, is in the window, like making a goofy face at them. So she startles them. So now Diane's at the party. Yay, the party's going to get started. But back at Valerie's place, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I, I do like the intercut because you get like, the party theme, even though the slumber party is pretty kind of tame compared to like some of the other slumber parties we've seen in films. This one's kind of tame. The girls are just kind of sitting around chilling, smoking pot, eating potato chips, ordering pizza. But I do like that. It's that they are like you buy these girls as friends. Like you said, I do like the fact that there's no like conflict between the characters themselves. Like you don't got, you don't have the bitchy one that's being bitchy or anything like that. They're all, they're all very chill. But on the flip side of that, Valerie and Courtney are just having a, a very boring, typical night at home where Valerie has to watch Courtney. And there's this moment where they hear a, a noise outside. They hear the trash cans being knocked over. And Courtney's like, oh, 
the dog's in the trash can again. And Valerie's like, well, go check it. And Courtney says, no, what do you think? I'm stupid. I'm not going out there. But Valerie goes out there to check on them. And the second Valerie leaves the house, Courtney runs upstairs to her bedroom to find her Playgirl magazine. That a girl. But here's the thing. I don't know how many teenage girls actually look at Playgirl magazine to me. I mean, this was written by a woman. So <laughs> it was written, it was written by a woman. But I don't think I never thought like Playgirl magazines were like popular to women. I think most of Playgirl magazine subscriptions came from gay men. Let's be honest. Well, it's think they got it from that nice gay neighbor. <laughs> they did. But I, I like the fact that, though, that these girls are, are blatantly looking at nude men in a Playgirl magazine because that's a tr- that's a trait that you would associate with boys. Right. How many how many fucking movies have we seen where boys are looking at nudie magazines? This one does the complete opposite and gives us girls now looking at nudie magazines of guys. And I really just like that little, that little twist. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree. And you even get to see inside one of them here in a little bit. When you see that boy's fanny, my gosh, he gets a nice little fanny shot. I'll take it. It's all you get, but I'll, I'll, I'll still, I'll take it. You don't get any dick. You do get his little butt though. Outside Valerie gets spooked because she hears a noise and she like looks into the neighbor's yard and sees like the swing is swinging by itself. Uh, it's very creepy. This I like the whole atmosphere of the the nighttime isolation of the suburban neighborhood that that's painted because there literally is nobody around. Like you never see cars drive by, you never see anybody else out. It's very dark. It's very dreary as the film goes on because the thunderstorm starts to happen. And I I just like the just the isolated tense atmosphere. One of my favorite aspects about the whole Valerie subplot here is that. They keep drawing it out and drawing it out and drawing it out. You keep thinking like she's going to find some big reveal or she's going to get killed. She's going to find the sister dead. Something's going to happen. But no, like instead they just keep drawing out the suspense of these two girls at this house really are oblivious to what's going on. And and up until really the last, like I'd say 10, 15 minutes of the movie, these girls continue to have like a series of fake outs, like whether it be Courtney startling her sister or discovering that the noise was coming from the dog knocking over the garbage cans, or at one point, the uh, like you said, like the whole moment with the swing, she hears the noise, she pulls the bushes apart, and she sees it moving back and forth. There's always an explanation here for why they heard something, or why they suspected something, or why they thought maybe someone was watching them. There's always a rational and reasonable explanation for them to kind of just brush it off. So they really don't have any reason to suspect anything. And I think that makes overall the whole thing that much scarier because they don't even know they're completely oblivious to the fact that there is danger so close to where they are. Well, Neil and Jeff show up at the girl's house to spy on them through the window and they see the girls changing like they see boobs um, as these girls are just blatantly changing in the middle of the living room and talking about uh, another couple, Stephanie and Joe, getting caught having sex by her parents. And of course, these boys are all giddy being able to see to see boobs. Um, back at the Valerie's, she's on to Courtney. She knows exactly what Courtney's doing because she calls up to Courtney. He's like, Courtney, what are you doing? And Courtney says, I'm doing my homework. And Valerie's like, yeah, whatever. Just don't tear out the centerfold this time. <laughs> Too late. She already has. So the girls decide they're going to order pizza while Diane goes out to the garage for firewood. And as she's gathering firewood, she gets startled by a snail. And here, I think snails are cute. 
Like she, no snail has ever grossed me out, but if, apparently Diane is grossed out by seeing the snail crawling on the wood. But immediately it is chopped in half with a meat cleaver by Mr. Content, who is out doing his snail hunt. And Diane's like, oh, you know, how many have you got? And he, and he says, oh, this is 54 now. And she makes the comment that her dad does snail hunts as well because uh, he doesn't like to use pesticides. And then she turns around. She's like, have a good night, Mr. Content. And he's like, yeah, you too, Diane. And he immediately sees another snail on the ground. And as he goes to chop it with the meat cleaver, I mean, really quick. I mean, it's it happens like unexpectedly. He is drill. Like you hear the drill start and all of a sudden he falls to the ground and the drill bit is through his neck. This is kind of the first of the gore scenes where you're like, okay, you guys can pull off a really fucking gnarly effect. It is a, a gnarly effect. And again, they only get better as it goes on from here. Um, I One of the things that does almost pull me out of reality a little bit here is the fact that they did decide to give the driller killer the single like loudest weapon aside from like a chainsaw itself they give him a very loud weapon and and sometimes they're able to play it off like oh they're watching a slasher oh they're blending margaritas and they didn't hear the the drill but like there's no way you're going to tell me that in in this entire suburban neighborhood there's not one person who's suspicious about the ongoing sounds of drills going off at like 10 p.m. like it's it's constant. Like this guy is only drilling people aside from maybe like two kills in the movie. Almost every death in this film is via power drill. And so the, the audio, this thing, the sound, this thing must be making. I mean, I don't totally buy it that nobody's picking up on it. Um, they do give you occasional like cutaway moments that allude to people just not hearing it. I don't fully buy it, but for the sake of the film in general and how enjoyable it is overall. I can like brush that aside. It's really a minor gripe. I get what you're saying. Yeah, it is. It does add a little bit of unbelievability to it, but it also, like I said, I I like the fact that it does sort of also add to the isolated feeling that this neighborhood has, even though like, it's not really an isolated neighborhood. This is a typical neighborhood. There's, there's several houses on this block. It's not like there's, they're out in the middle of the country. This is your typical, like, I think this is supposed to be what, um, um, they mentioned Ventura, California, right? So it's, it's a neighborhood, but you're right. But then on the flip side, the fact that like nobody hears it just helps build that atmosphere of like, Ooh, it's kind of eerie and quiet and, and nobody's around. This film falls into like two tropes that sort of do get a little bit annoying. One of them you mentioned where like every time the killer is about ready to use the drill, there is some loud, um, thing happening where the characters can't hear either. It's the blender or the TV blaring or, or whatever it is. And then the other one is how many times these characters walk out to the fucking garage. Diane goes back into the house and the girls are sitting around just reading the newspaper. They're reading about some boy who got stuck in a storm cellar and she drops the wood in front of them and startles them. And you know, then they start, uh, Jackie starts reading horoscopes for Diane and Kim while Trish gets up to shut the window. And as she's looking out the window, she does see the killer out there. Like you get a very blatant shot of him, like peeking. It's very creepy. And she shuts the window really quick and asks Diane if she remembered to close the garage door. And Diane says, I I don't know. I don't remember. Then she looks out the window again and there, her Barbie doll that she threw out that morning is literally stuck to her, the house, the windowsill with, uh, 
a bloody meat cleaver, it looks like. Yeah, I, I am surprised that these women don't respond with a little more fear in this moment. I mean, like, don't get me wrong. These girls are pretty proactive. But from the moment I, Trish, pulled that curtain aside and saw that very ominous male figure standing on my lawn, I'd be like, holy fuck, call the fucking, call the police right away. There is a man looking through the window. And then for that doll covered in blood to be attached to my window, like, yeah, I don't know how they got it to stick. I guess he supported it somehow from the window frame, but... It's just a creepy fucking visual. I would be like, call the police immediately, even after it is passed off that it is actually, you know, the boys. Well, it really isn't the boys that did this, but the girls are led to believe it was the boys. I wouldn't even get to that point. Before I even stepped foot outside, I'd be on on the phone calling 911 with something like that. That would scare the shit out of me. Yeah, on one hand, they do think it's the boys, but then on the other hand, Trish did see somebody in her front yard that obviously isn't one of the boys, and she doesn't mention it to anybody. Like, she doesn't say, oh, my God, there's a weird guy out front. Instead, she's like, well, we got to go check the garage. They all go back out. They all go outside to check the garage. And they get to the garage. And Diane's like, see, I did close the door, which she did. But Trish is like, oh, well, you didn't lock it. So Trish goes over and steps on this lock that's supposed to lock the garage door. And then they all turn to go back inside. They exit the garage. And as they're exiting, we do see the killer emerge from the darkness. Again, lots of shadow play, lots of dark, you know, dark framing of characters and stuff that are that's pretty effective. Oh, yeah. I, I really love the usage of shadows in this film. Um, it, it's actually pretty expertly handled, like when they are in the darker sequences. Um, it's never so dark that you like almost lose some of the features like in a prom night. Like, you know, when you watch like an original cut of prom night, like there are times that you can't see shit in this movie, like. Even in some of the older cuts I've seen before, I always remember thinking like, wow, they were really smart. They they didn't overdo these dark sequences, but when they do have these moments of the killer lurking, you get slivers of his face looking through, uh, you know, slits of slits of things or his face is illuminated, just part of it. So even though he doesn't have a mask on, there's still like this element of mystery to this guy like it's you don't always get really clear visuals of him until really towards the finale of the film um and so it does make still for this guy to be rather again intimidating because you don't always know exactly what you're looking at well valerie goes up to courtney's room and catches her looking at the playgirl takes it from her and you know instead of like chastising her sister she starts to read like the little like hot guy of the week segments and she's like oh jason he likes to work out and blah blah, blah. and we do get the the little image of the playgirl magazine page where we see this guy bent over and we see his nice little butt nice little butt he has but courtney's like ew valerie's like oh whatever you were beating boys off in the fifth grade i don't need to know that about this girl no, this girl is. This is the moment she's sucking on this lollipop too. Like she's she being played this, off as like she's like what, like maybe like 14, 13, something 14? like that. And she has this giant lollipop. She was just looking at a Playgirl magazine, sucking and licking this lollipop, and then her sister tells her she was beating off boys in the fifth grade, and then she does these little things where like, okay, now she's acting like she's a six year old because she's like, oh, whatever. I'll get you for this and like pouts and crosses her arms on the bed. I'm like, this is very odd. This is really fucking weird. What are you, yeah. what are you trying to do with this character? 
I do want to also point out really quick the very large and dramatic like picture window on the second floor of Valerie's house. There's so many moments where Valerie's like watching from across the street through her gigantic window. They'll cut to these dramatic shots of her just looking outside and I'm like, God damn, that's a very dramatic window. It makes for some very dramatic shots. I like this house. I wish we were in Valerie's house more towards the end of the finale. It seems like a very fancy house. Diane calls John. She goes, sneaks into the bathroom to call John on the phone. And actually, this is kind of funny. The girls listen in, and this is when she calls him Boo Boo. She's like, hey, Boo Boo. Oh, yeah, I miss you, too. I love you. Oh, yeah, I love it, too. Do you think I'm getting better? I don't know if she's talking about fucking or blowjobs. Either one I don't want to know. I don't want to picture her doing it with these, with with this guy. But they're listening on the other end, and then they all laugh at her. So she knows they're listening. And she yells at them. And at this moment, the uh, the lights go off. And, you know, the girls find matches to try to light to see where they're at. And, and Trish informs them that the fuse box is in the garage because, of course, it is. So they all venture out to the garage. And when they get to the garage, Diane comes up behind them and scares them. But then they enter the garage. And we do see, like, as they're entering, we do see a, a figure like quickly, we see this figure like in the in the light, like back away real quick. And we don't know exactly who it is because it happens so quickly. But when they get to the fuse box, Trish realizes there's some fuses missing. And then she accidentally drops the flashlight. And when Kim bends down to get the flashlight and get, tries to get back up, there's a man standing in front of her. And she immediately reacts by fucking knocking him out. <laughs> and it is, it's just Jeff. He's like, can't you guys take a joke? The poor boys in this movie, I mean, they do get their ass, they get their asses handed to them by these girls. Every guy that tries to move in on any of these girls immediately gets their ass kicked. And I do like that about these women. They don't take no shit. No, these, yeah, she knocks them out. And like, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. Here's the fuse back. Can't you take a joke? <laughs> um, Valerie, again, here's another noise outside. So she has to go back outside because she can't find Courtney. And she sees that the garbage is knocked over. And she picks it up and then she looks back over in the yard at that stupid swing and, and sees that it's not swinging this time. But as she turns around, she's fucking grabbed by Courtney with a knife. Okay. First of all, Courtney could go fuck herself in this moment. Don't ever come up and startle me with a knife. I'll fucking kill you. Second of all, because of the way this film is handling its multitude of storylines and you're really getting like an even amount of, of attention towards either storyline. Uh, you're really like not sure which one is supposed to take the, the the spotlight, which one is the focal batch of characters, I guess you can say. Um, and, and so, you know, Valerie still feels like a character who is very disposable at this point. So the startle here with Courtney d- doesn't need to necessarily work as well as it does. But because you still feel like Valerie's character could really be killed at any time, when she's grabbed in this moment, I still jump to this day. Like, I still react when I see this moment. It's a surprisingly good startle. Um, it is a fake out with it being her sister. But they, they again, they really did themselves some favors in, in spreading, dispersing the amount of attention between the two groups so evenly. Um, it gives us plenty of these moments. And this is just one example of one of the moments that works really well for me. Well, and uh, Valerie is not too thrilled. And she's like, don't you, why are you attacking me with a knife? And Courtney's like, oh, well, whatever. It's a dull knife anyways. But then the next door, John shows up in his blue card honks several times until Diane comes out. And then the first thing she says to him is, hello, gorgeous. 
as the camera is like focused on his doughy flabby face we're like honey no no his homely ginger come on girl you're pretty diane she is pretty come on his dick must be fat and pink i mean like fat fat i'm saying just a low hanger thick fire crotch there ain't no way this guy is anything but but i mean like I can't think of any other reason that this girl is so infatuated by this sweaty pink man. Well, she has him pull into the garage because she tells him she can't leave with him. So they go into the garage. There's this sweet moment where Valerie is doing Courtney's hair and, and makeup, trying to make her look pretty. This is when they turn her into a, you know, Angel <laughs> from the film. They make her look like a teenage prostitute. I don't know whose idea this was, but that's what she ends up looking like. But she wants to go crash the party next door. And Valerie's like, no, let's quit worrying about them. They're not worried about us after all. So let's just, you know, have our own little fun here. I think in a lot of films, Troy, like moments like this can really slow down the pacing. Um, But I do think at least with this film, this was kind of a needed moment because I think at this point you start to realize that Valerie is actually getting to be kind of vulnerable um, they're they're picking up on like an undercurrent of insecurities in the character. They're allowing her to develop some of these moments with her sister. So they're becoming closer. And you as the viewer are now starting to realize more and more, oh, I don't know if these characters are disposable. And so I really like that they gave us this moment because up to this point, these two have just been butting heads. But you realize that this really is still a loving sibling relationship. They're just constantly antagonizing each other but i buy it like i buy the relationship between these two girls even though it's weird how they play courtney sometimes like it's clear that this girl just wants to be part of the group and she she knows she's she looks like ali sheedy post makeover in the breakfast club like it's the before and after you know and and it is only more whorish and she wants to show it off to these girls because she's really trying to make an impression and be cool in front of these you know older teenagers I do buy that arc. It's kind of weird sometimes because it is a little bit sexualized with this character. Um, But I get it. Like, I feel like it does feel natural for a girl of her age. And I think Valerie's reactions to her feel extremely natural. And she becomes more and more likable as the movie's going on. Well, and it's needed, like you said, because it ups the stakes. Because the more scenes we have with these two, I think the more endeared we become with them. So we definitely don't want to see harm come to them. Uh, which it was kind of a smart move for the filmmakers to go that route to slowly build these two characters as being, Hey, guess what? These are prominent characters and we're going to give them these little moments that might seem annoying at first, but they're actually truly bonding moments. And we see that these sisters generally care about each other. They're generally nice, you know, caring people. They, they're, 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 they don't deserve any harm. Not that any of the other characters do, but it just kind of ups that stake with us because we're spending so much time with them. I mean, we get to, let's be honest, we get to know these two characters way more than we get to know like someone like Jackie, who I feel is probably the least developed and least utilized character in the entire film. Yeah, and, and it is it is a shame because, like, you know, one thing to acknowledge, it's Jackie is the only character of color in this film, but this was in a time where it's rare you got a character of color in general. Um, and I do like that. They don't like make it like a thing. Like you'd have so many side characters, you know, eighties films, like when you would have a character of color, they'd always have like 
the one-liners or be the first one killed off. They'd fall to all of those tropes. And at least Jackie's character is, again, just like written to be one of the girls. They don't put any focus on that at all. They just let her be. Like, they develop her just like any other character. She's got a few fun one-liners, but they're fun because of just <laughs> the things she says, you know? Like, it's 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 not played up in any strange, gratuitous, early 80s borderline racial way it's it's actually just part of what makes her charming i wish we got more with her because i like the actress yeah no it's odd that she is one of the she's one of the members of the slumber party i mean she's one of the group but it's oftentimes it's very easy to forget that she's there right yeah because so much time is spent with like diane and you get stuff with kim but she is just kind of there like you said to say to say one-liners and then she makes a really stupid decision that leads to her death and that's that's about it um, so in the garage, jo- uh, John and Diane are making out heavily. He has her tit and he's squeezing her big old titty. And, you know, she's like, no, I can't, we can't do it in here because the girls have been in and out of here all night. It's been like grand central station. So he says, let's go back to my house because my parents aren't home. And she says, you know, I can't do that. Trish would kill me. And his response is Trish is very understanding. Just go ask. So what does she do? She goes in and asks. He gets to be borderline rapey with this girl. Like, I mean, he is not taking no for an answer. Now she bites, she gives in because she can't say no. She can't resist his sexual allure. Apparently this guy is definitely out of all the characters in the film, the most underdeveloped and the least likable. So you're waiting for this guy to die. Um, and as soon as she leaves, it kind of lingers on him a little bit. And he's like chuckling to himself. He's like, oh boy, I'm going to get it. Uh, and he is going to get it. But he's actually going to get a kill scene. And I'm really excited to talk about the scene because I think we're getting close to one of the most exciting moments of the film, to be honest. Oh, yeah. Once the kill, once the kills of like the main characters start, the film moves at a pretty brisk pace. And this film is under... Uh, 80 minutes it's like 76 minutes it's it moves fairly fast this movie i mean right now roger i'm looking at our time we've been recording it's hour and 16 minutes that is literally how long the film is we have been talking about the film now as long as the film is i mean that's a trend for us it is it is so yeah but inside diane goes inside and there's this cute little moment where like Trish is looking for a steak to put on uh, Jeff's eye and she doesn't have a steak. So she has to use hot dogs. But Diane does come in and tells the group that her and John are going to get beer. And she's like, I'll be, we'll be back. All right. And Trish's response is, you don't have to ask my permission. So Diane kind of scuttles away with her tail between her legs. And and Trish makes the comment. It's like, I guess you can't expect old times to stay the same, huh? And yes, here's the the death scene you're talking about because she goes back out to the garage. She gets in the car. She's like, she sees uh, John sitting next to her and she's like, oh, well, that wasn't easy, but at least it's over with. And she reaches over to kiss him and his head literally falls off. I really love this reveal because they, you know, they, they heavily shadow the sequence. They're in the garage. It makes sense. But they put just enough illumination on the moment that when the head separates from the rest of the torso and it reveals the stump neck um there's enough illumination on like the stump the wound to show like the blood and the gore of it all but you really don't see much of like the head you do though just see it like roll off the shoulders and just the way they film it is honestly extremely effective and what really sells it is diane's reaction to this after the fact i mean 
one of the reasons this whole sequence is so great is because Diane fucking sells it. These screams are intense. And the only reason the girls don't hear it is because they're making those goddamn fucking margaritas. I mean, they look great, those margaritas, don't get me wrong. But they're blending them the whole length of a woman being killed. I mean, this girl is screaming her head off. And it does launch into a really fantastic, though brief, chase sequence. Oh, it's super. I mean, it, I wouldn't even call it a chase sequence. He he immediately like busts the window to the to the uh, to the car. She gets out of the other side of the door and she goes to the garage door. And of course, she can't get it open. And then he immediately is up, is on her. I mean, she falls to the ground. There's this cool shot. We, we, there's a lot of talk about this film. You know, I'm not the first person to ever say this. I'm going to take credit for it. But there's a lot of talk about this film with the drill bit be or the drill being a very specific choice for this killer to use because it's phallic, right? And there's a shot between the killer's legs where Diane is literally on the ground, cowered up against the garage door. And you see between the legs, he's holding the drill bit down and it literally looks like it's his, like a penis, like it's coming out from between his legs. And then he lifts it up and she screams and it cuts away. We don't actually see her death scene, but I, I think, I think we would be amiss to men- to not mention the fact that this drill bit at many times is a very phallic device. Well, and especially with what he associates it with, like as he does eventually speak here, it's clear that this killer fetishizes what he's doing to these girls it's definitely um acknowledged that he thinks they're beautiful and that he he enjoys what he's doing to them almost almost in like a lustful sexual way he gets off on on what he's doing to these women and so um i think it makes sense and the way they film it it is often a suggestive angle or or done in a way that does give it like a pulse of sexuality to it um that adds a really great kind of like an undercurrent of sexual energy that most slashers don't have, at least with when it comes to the killer. You know, normally there's sexualizations of the characters of the girls, but it normally doesn't carry over into the killer and their motivations. So having this kind of sexualized element, this sexuality coming from the character and this very phallic choice, you're absolutely right, in, in, in how he executes most of his kills – it's something unique to this this killer. It's it, it's something standout about him. It's one of his defining traits, and it does make him because of that that much more interesting. Yeah. So inside, Kim has finished making the margaritas, and the doorbell rings, and of course, it's the pizza. They forgot about the pizza. So the guys go to answer the door while uh, Trish is grounding up money to pay for the pizza. You know, there's this fun little moment where the guys are like, hey, at the door, they're like, what's the damage? And you hear the voice on the other side say, six so far. So they think that the, they think it's the pizza man saying six dollars, but it's actually the killer. That's his body count so far. Want, want, want. All this time, uh, Kim has called Coach Jana because there's this conversation that was happening about how, like, the baseball game the night before they could not figure the girls couldn't figure out where the six runs came from. So I want to say the coach and these girls have a pretty. What do you want to say, like? liberal relationship because this has to be like 1130 at night and they're just calling the coach up just to ask her a random question and then bold bold i would never think to do that why did they have her number like in the first place very casual and she's appeasing it i mean she's on the other end of the line just you know talking shop with kim about baseball (laughs) i mean this is kim is definitely coach jan is lesbian lover the other lesbian (laughs) lover that's not pam because 
Kim has a love for, for baseball and sports, unlike any other woman in this movie. There's definitely got to be something going on between her and the teacher. The fact she's calling her at 11.30 p.m. I mean, don't tell me that that doesn't allude to something. Everyone's acting like it's all fine and normal. It's not. That's not normal <laughs> to be hanging out with your teacher. Uh, whatever. There was this one really fun little moment before what happens here, because we're coming up on this big big reveal in the moment in which the hot dogs were being applied to the face and so forth. Um, there is a brief little moment where Trish called out the moment with the Barbie doll and you have Neil, Jeff's friend, Neil basically say like, what, what Barbie doll? And it's really brief. Like they totally just kind of blow it off. It's, but it's played off perfectly. The actors deliver it really well. Cause it's so like such like a secondary little moment. They don't even notice it. But you kind of see this moment here where they don't know exactly like what they're talking about. So they could be piecing this together. And and meanwhile, again, across the street, you've got Valerie and her sister who are looking out the window because Valerie's sister did just hear what she says is the sound of honking him and screams. And so they start to think that like the girls are getting getting drunk, having fun. And this is really motivating Courtney to want to go over there that much more. Um, but what they're actually hearing was the sound of obviously of Diane getting killed. So I do like that. It's constantly like connective tissue. Like they're starting to pick up on what's going on across the street. It keeps coming back to the noises they're hearing or, you know, what they're seeing going on. And um, I do love that. There's this constant connectivity between the two storylines. Well, they, they get the money together. They open the door for the pizza man and, Huge reveal, the pizza man falls into their house and his eyeballs have been drilled out. And of course they start screaming and the coach hears the screams on the other line, uh, on the other end of the phone. She's like, girls, what's going on? But the line disconnects. And Trish immediately goes to call the police and she gets them on the line and as she's giving them their address outside, we see that the killer goes to the phone line and cuts it. Um, this is a big reveal, like to have this random pizza man be the, the, the thing that lets everyone in the film, all these characters know exactly what's going on is, is quite interesting, but I like the moment. The effect looks decent. We do see, you know, his eyeballs have been drilled out. How did he keep him standing up like that though? Like, was he propped up? I don't understand. I don't know. And how come we didn't hear how he, obviously his eyes were drilled out on the porch because he still has the, he has the pizza in his hand and everything. How come we didn't hear that? It doesn't make a lick of sense, but it's such a fun moment. And the fact that his eyes are drilled out, it does look pretty good. And this pizza man's body is just laying there throughout the whole film. Like it's constantly coming back to that body. So I, I do enjoy this moment. And I do like, like they're like basically like, all right, let's kick this into fucking high gear now. Like it's been enough of this, like suspecting something's happening. Nonsense. Everybody now, at least everyone within that house, knows that shit's hitting the fan and they have to be proactive about it. Oh, well, the guys are the guys take charge. The guys say we need to close the curtains. Neil's like, we got to do something for the girls. We got to help the girls. So they decide, Neil and Jeff decide that they're going to make a run for it because one of them will have to make it. And so. Trish gives them knives and Neil goes to the front door. Uh, Jeff goes to the back door and they immediately like on the count of three, they both dart out the door. Jeff gets to the garage and he's trying to open the garage door to get out of the garage, to get out of the backyard. And all of a sudden Diane's body falls from the rafters. She's hanging from the rafters. And we do see that her death was caused by a drill to the forehead because there's a hole in her forehead. This, Killer likes to drill through foreheads. That's what he did to the poor telephone woman. 
but then he's, he's, I mean, you get this guy scream, like he is screaming, which is something again, you rarely hear in a slasher film, like a man scream at the top of his lungs. And then all of a sudden out of the shadows, the fucking killer comes up behind him and drills him right through the fucking sh- chest. And the drill bit comes out of his fucking chest. It's, it's a pretty a, a whole effective sequence, I think. Oh God. I mean, it, it's one of the best moments in the film. And I appreciate about the guys because, you know, the whole thing about like, let's go and split up is often the worst decision characters make in the film. And in this case, it does lead to their death. But I like that in this case, the guys straight up say, we need to go get help for the girls. Let's split up. Cause then at least we know one of us is going to make it. Like, it's not like they're not aware of what they're doing. It's not like they're making the dumb call. They're making a call of desperation, um, which I think makes it way more palatable for me and makes them seem way more endearing. Um, and yeah, this, I mean, what it leads to for both characters, honestly, is really fantastic. But this whole moment here, when her body drops down and you're right, they let him just scream. Like he just gives out a scream that you normally don't get to hear from a male, uh, as the, as the drill just busts through his chest. It really is kind of setting the groundwork for what's to come. These are the kind of kills you can expect coming forward from this movie. And, and this next moment that follows with Neil phenomenal. Oh, it's uh, yeah. The pace is the pace is going full speed in the film at this point, Um, because right now there's probably only about 20 minutes left of the film. So it's picking up fast. Yeah. Neil Neil's death scene to me uh, was always the most memorable because it's just so it's so brutal. And he was like so close to to being like not killed and, you know, to be like brutally fucking stabbed to death in a front yard of a neighborhood is just like, wow. Uh, but Valerie, yeah, he runs over to Valerie's house and she's watching a horror movie on TV. So there's basically what she's watching is sort of mirroring what's happening. And she has the TV volume up, but she does hear the door because she keeps looking towards it. She hears it, someone knocking, but she thinks I'm thinking she thinks that um, it's just like the guy's playing a joke on her. So she doesn't immediately get up and, and answer the door. But as the pounding gets more aggressive, she finally does get up. But it's a little too late because, you know, by the time she reaches the front door to let Neil in, the killer has appeared behind him and Neil charges the killer and they they fall onto the lawn out of view. So when Valerie gets to the door and looks out the window, she doesn't see them. Neil has knocked the drill out of the killer's hand and the killer is attacking him and the killer literally bites Neil's hand to make him let go of the knife because Neil has a butcher knife and the killer immediately picks it up and stabs the fuck out of him all while some character in the movie that trish is watching is being brutally stabbed it's all very well in sync it's one of the better executed intercut kill scenes i think we've seen to date to be real i mean they use the footage on the tv and this movie she's watching by the way like get my get my hands on this because I'll sit down and watch that movie any day of the week. This fucking nonsense black and white slasher film she's watching, it looks like total shit and it also looks fantastic at the same time. I, I want to know more about that movie. But, like, you know, she's blasting the volume. Her sister's upstairs on the phone doing her own thing, talking to her friend. And I think at first she thinks she's hearing something, and then she finally realizes, oh, my God, I really am hearing something. Because she's got the volume blasted up. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I like that when the killer appears... And Neil realizes, like, he has no choice but to defend himself. Neil actually makes the first move. He, like, he rushes at the killer and slashes at him, and they go into a full fight. And it's not until the killer just, like you said, bites him in the hand, gets him to drop the knife, that he's able to get 
the best of Neil. And just the way like her lawn is framed through her window, she just can't see the action of what's going on. But she's so close to discovering exactly what's happening. And there's so many of these moments with Valerie's character where she's so close to being clued in on what's happening. It's just a matter of timing. And in turn of the director, it's a matter of really well executed sequences. I mean, these scenes work because they're timed well, they're edited well, and they're filmed really well. And and this really is a phenomenal scene up until this great intercut back and forth between this movie. I mean, we've seen this done in other movies where it just doesn't work nearly as good as this, but it's because they do have a few shots where they show. I mean, they show the knife going into the torso. They show this guy bleeding out all over. It is not, they're not intercutting with this movie to avoid showing it. They're intercutting it as part of an artistic choice in the movie. And because of that, that really translates. Um, And it just makes for a very visually uh, satisfying moment. And it's brutal. It's it's really brutal. This kid gets the shit stabbed out of him. Not only that, the killer gets his body and carries it back to the garage where he opens the trunk of John's car. And we see that that is where he's been storing all the bodies now because he he's counting how many bodies he has. We see Mr. Contents in there. We see Diane's in there. And he tosses poor, uh, poor Neil's dead body into the trunk with the others. In the meantime, the girls are inside. They're armed with knives. They're in front of the fireplace. Jackie makes the comment that she's hungry. And so she literally just proceeds to get the pizza. So she literally just proceeds to get the pizza and take a slice and and take a bite of it. She's like, you know what? When I, when I'm, when I get scared, I get hungry and I'm hungry. So here I am. Here's a piece of pizza. And oh my God, I feel better already. (laughs) Oh my God. When they're like the body, they're like moving the body and they're like, he's so cold. And Jackie's like, is the pizza. (laughs) She, this is her defining character trait. The fact that she gets through trauma by gorging. Um, And I really like that about Jackie. I wish they explored this more with her. And I wish they gave her a little more humor because she actually delivers these lines pretty well. She's rather funny. Outside there's this moment when he's putting the bodies away and you do hear the killer actually count like one, two, three, four shit. Like he realizes that one of the bodies is missing and you do hear him speak to himself again, which is again, unique to most slashers. Normally they're mute. In this case, this killer is not, he's more of a Freddy almost at times where he's cracking a few lines here and there towards the end of the movie, but he starts talking more and more at this point and he realizes that one of the bodies is missing. It's Jeff. And Jeff is actually still alive and dragging himself across the fucking lawn, trying to get to the house so the girls can fucking be alerted as towards what's going on. Oh, yeah. And they get, they hear something at the door. So they go into the kitchen, but they're not sure what it is. And all they can see is like Jeff's shadow under the door crack. And, you know, he's fucked up. He's bleeding to death. So he doesn't have a lot of energy. And he's just kind of like pawing at the door gently trying to trying to get in and trying to get attention. But the girls don't open the door. And then, yeah, I mean, the killer comes up behind him and poor, poor Jeff has all he can do is scream as the, the girls inside now realize what's happening and they hear him being drilled. And then we see again the the pool of blood come seeping under the door because Jeff has now been drilled to death. That Jeff really sells his moments of fear. Like, he screams multiple times, and I'm like, this poor fucker. Like, let him die. He should have died the first time. But no, now he has to die again? Like, oh my god, this poor guy. He's getting the worst of it. Yeah, he's selling it, and it's, it's you know, it's sad because both of these guys were so close to, to safety. 
you know, and it was just happenstance that, you know, poor Trish didn't see or didn't get to the door in time to see what was going on. And then the girls are too scared to answer the door. Well, when the guys made the run for it, those girls should have fucking when the boys ran and and the girls knew, oh, fuck, the, the killer's distracted. They should have made a run for it. Like, the girls are stupid to stay in that house just sitting there. They should have been a little more strategic and been like, okay, obviously the killer is going to be chasing the boys. We should be making a run for it the other direction. Courtney, like, someone calls for Courtney and and Valerie's calling Courtney to tell her she has a phone call, but she um, does not answer. And then she looks out the window and she actually sees Courtney walking over to Trisha's house. I'm like, Courtney, you little fucking bitch. Stay inside. But no, she's praying over to Trisha's house because she wants to show off how she looks with all of her makeup and her hair done. So just as Courtney gets the, to the house, to Trisha's house, and she's getting ready to knock, uh, she sees Trish coming and, and takes off. And all the while, we see Russ Thorne watching from the bushes next to the porch. Valerie comes up to the door and knocks and calls for Trish. And upstairs, the girls hear this. And Jackie immediately, she's like, oh, my God, we got to let her in. She's here. Jackie busts out of the bedroom door, runs downstairs, throws the door open. Valerie's gone. Instead, she's greeted by the killer who proceeds to slash the drill across her throat. So Jackie is now gone. I appreciate and respect Jackie's. Uh, devotion to, you know, wanting to alert Valerie uh, as towards the dangers of the man killing people in the house. I I appreciate that about her. Um, This is not the most satisfying kill. She throws the door open. He slashes. She turns around. There's a wound on her neck. She's dead. It's not an awful kill, but it definitely feels a bit more throwaway than a lot of the other kill sequences we have here. Um, But there is this whole thing now going on where the girls are surrounded. Like the girls are walking around the house. The other girls are trapped inside. The killer is focused on the girls inside the house. The girls walking around the house have no fucking idea what's going on, but somehow also manage to not hear anything. Like, I mean, would you not hear the screams of the women inside the house as their friends being murdered? Would they not hear the sound of the drill being revved? I mean, there's so many things going on. I don't understand how Courtney and her sister are not at all aware of it. But again, because I like the movie so much, I'll roll with it. Yeah, it's a lot of walking around the house now because Valerie goes out to the backyard and runs into Courtney. And she's like, I'm going to go back around front. So you stay back here. So she leaves Courtney. Thunderstorms start to happen. You can tell Courtney's like not comfortable being in the back by herself. Um, But she goes and she goes right back into the house. Kim hears that Trish is back in the house. And Kim is like, we, you know, we need to, we need to get her. We need to go down there and, and get her. And, and. Trish says, uh, no, if she brought help, they'll find us. Kim's response is, well, if she's all alone, maybe that guy will find her. And then Trish makes the comment, well, maybe they're friends. Kind of insinuating that she thinks that maybe the killer is is working with Valerie, but we know that's not the case. Um, Valerie leaves and the girls are in, in, in Trish's room and they're talking about like whether Valerie could be working with this killer or not. Kim's like, you really think Valerie's with him? And she's like, I don't know. It was so weird when we heard her call us. And then Jackie ran downstairs and they're, as they're talking about this, we see behind them, the killer has come is coming in her bedroom window. How did he get her bedrooms on the second floor? I mean, this little guy's fucking nimble. He's scaling walls. He's scaling walls, carrying a giant power drill. 
Yeah, it's a big fucking drill, but somehow he manages to do it, and it does make for a very creepy shot where the two girls are completely unaware, and they're just, you know, discussing amongst themselves the fact that they are starting to suspect Valerie, which kind of makes Trish seem a little bit like a bitch at this point because we we know Valerie is not behind it. But, like, I get it. Like, I get her reasoning because they're right. They just had this moment where their friend was killed. They had heard her voice. Is she involved? So I'll play along with this. But this whole moment of him coming through the window, like, I mean, surprisingly effective. And then he's creeping up behind them. And it's slow. He's sneaking up. And it's not until they hear him step on, like, a, a floorboard and creak that they, like, turn back and see him. And I love this moment where they just see him, like, standing right over them. And they just scream. And it's chaos. It's instantly chaos. I love it. Oh, it's they start throwing shit at him. Um, and hit him with a ball bat. So he falls under the floor. And as he's on the floor, they're trying to move the barricades that they've put in front of her bedroom door, like her dresser and nightstand and stuff. But he gets up and gets the knife that, that Kim had. And as she turns around, he stabs her in the stomach with it. Just as poor Trish turns around and sees this unfolding and she has no choice, but to just run and leave her friend, Kim, who is now dead with a knife. I mean, I was actually kind of bummed. Like, Kim wasn't the most developed character in the film, but she was fun. And, you know, at this point, like, you're right. They're throwing shit at the killer. They're both doing whatever they can to fucking defend themselves. I really felt like she deserved to at least get out of that fucking room, the poor thing. Um, But now Trish takes off running, and she makes the very bold choice. And tell me why this happens, Troy. Why does Trish not run from the house? You know, that's a good question because she knows that the killer is inside now. So running out the front door and down the street to a neighbor's house would be the most logical decision that she could make. Because at this point, she doesn't even know that Mr. Content's dead, right? She thinks he's still home. So she could have easily ran right next door, but she doesn't. Instead, she goes into her parents' bedroom and proceeds to hide inside of a giant garment bag. Yeah, like the worst possible decision she could have made. You're going to tell me that between making an escape for it, like making a run from the house and hiding yourself in a closet inside of a garment bag, like that seems like the the, the stronger choice here. Okay, girl. I mean, like somehow she fucking survives. I guess it was the right call. But um, yeah, like it, it really baffles me. I was really trying to think like, is there something I missed? Like, was there a reason was the one door bolted shut that she couldn't get out or no, but like there's, there's nothing, there's no explanation for it. No, because this next scene, Valerie goes to find, goes back into the backyard to find Courtney laying on the ground, playing dead. This bitch. I know it's like the fifth time she's done this. And like Valerie, like she grabs at Valerie and Valerie's like, you little, you know, you little twerp or whatever she says and she's like you know what we're gonna go there's nobody here let's go lock up the house and go home they go back into the house and in the kitchen courtney just wants to get a beer so we get this moment where she opens the refrigerator like several times and each time she opens the refrigerator we see that kim's body is in the refrigerator so every time she opens the door kim's body falls out but but um courtney doesn't see it until Valerie's like, come on, we're leaving. And Ki- and and Courtney sticks behind because she wants to sneak a beer. So once Valerie's out of the, the kitchen, Courtney goes to open the refrigerator and Kim's body falls out. She screams, runs out. Valerie's like, what, what? And so Valerie goes into the kitchen and sees Kim's body on the floor and screams, has that kind of very staged scream where she's like, eh, and runs. She's like, uh, Courtney, run. 
So Courtney takes off. She runs into the basement. Valerie runs into the basement. uh, Courtney hides under the sofa and watches as the killer comes in. He drags the um, covered. He uncovers the pizza man's body, uh, drags it into the basement, throws it down the steps where Valerie's down. She sees this poor drilled out eyeballed pizza man fall down the steps. And he proceeds to the killer proceeds then to lay on the ground with his drill and cover himself up. Okay. The strange choices are made on behalf of the killer, but again, I'll roll with it. Another moment here has happened where two characters could have technically made a run for it. I mean, there is, I think, a rear entrance to this house, and there is a front door, and they both run different directions. The killer is dead in the center of the two of them. I mean, they could have both technically left the house. So the fact that one is now under a sofa, and the other one decides to go into the basement, is not the most satisfying decision. Uh, but for the sake of the storyline, okay, th- th- that's fine. I'll, I'll go along with it. But now the killer coming in here and laying himself under a blanket, like, is he, like, deciding he's going to just, like, bunker down when he uh, he currently suspects that Trish is still wandering the streets or something? Like, does he think that like, the cops are just going to come and he's just going to be ready for them? Like, I don't really know what his motivation is in... in laying down on the floor and covering himself with a blanket, but okay. I mean, strong choices, whatever you need to do, man. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if he thinks it's going to, he's going to trick the girls into coming back to the house and thinking that it's just the pizza man so that he can easily dispatch him. But regardless, Roger, whether we think it's a great decision or not, it works because coach Jana immediately because remember coach Jana heard the the screaming on the phone so she's in her car she's driven to Trisha's house so not only do they cock on the phone she knows where her students live weird and she just like walks in she's like girls uh yeah i figured out where the sixth run come and she sees like nobody's there and she sees the the covered figure on the floor so she immediately just pulls the blanket back and we see that it's, of course, it's Russ Thorne. He's staring back at her with his bloody smile and he gets up and attacks her with the drill and she grabs a fireplace poker and there's this little battle between the two of them. And downstairs, Valerie is trying to find weapons to fight the killer and she grabs a circular saw and tries to run up the stairs with it. I'm like, okay, girl, good for you, but come on, it has a cord. Don't you know that? Because when she gets to the top of the stairs, the cord pulls her back down. I thought that this was going to be a moment where she got yanked back and killed herself. Yeah. <laughs> like That could have been very satisfying, but I don't want to see this character die. Um, I, I do like that Rachel just like walks into this nonsense and instantly has to defend herself and is quick enough to think to grab a goddamn fireplace poker. I mean, like again, a resourceful woman who will not let a man get the best of her. No, and she she's only killed. I mean, her, her death scene could have been easily avoided. It's not like she doesn't put up a fight because she does. Uh, and well, if it wasn't for uh, Courtney, because Courtney's under the couch this whole time and she sees what's happening, so she happens to stick her foot out and deliberately trip the killer right at the right moment, so that Coach Janet can like beat him several times with the fireplace poker. Not only that, but all of a sudden Trish comes out of nowhere. She's gotten out of her garment bag. And she comes out of nowhere with this knife screaming and she fucking stabs the killer. Oh, she shows up in glorious slow motion. I mean, I don't know what this moment is. She's wild eyed. (laughs) She's out for vengeance. Like, let's be clear. For the rest of the movie, Trish is out for vengeance. She's not really successful. She actually causes more harm than good. Really? Like, let's be honest here. Trish doesn't get much shit done. But she's crazy. 
after seeing all her friends murdered, and she just wants to kill this guy, and I respect that about her. She comes flying out like a banshee, screaming, knife in hand, stabs it into his back, causes some damage, he reacts. Rachel, being a sensible teacher and a lesbian, sees poor Trish and instantly is like, Trish, and she grabs her. She tries to like throw her out of the way because she doesn't want Trish to get injured. And then when she turns around, the killer is already back on his feet. He grabs that goddamn fucking buzzsaw and he just saws it right through her fucking gut. Poor Rachel. Who's Rachel, who was just there to I just there to try to help. She was just there to tell them where the sixth run came from, from the baseball game, and she's dispatched. And I liked this character. This, this death kind of bothered me. But, you know, I mean, it, it leads to this moment where the coach is dead now, and we see that downstairs, Valerie sees this machete, so she starts to pull it off the wall. But now this is when we see the, the killer actually have a dialogue. And he tells Trish, he's like, you're pretty. You are also pretty. I love you. It takes a lot of love to do this. And he's like, you know, you want it. You'll love it. And she's like, I don't know who you are. Just leave me alone. And I mean, this is creepy. Like his line delivery here is super, super effective. Super fucking creepy. This, this dude is just like fucking nightmare fuel. Oh yeah. I mean, if he wasn't creepy at the beginning of the movie, by now he's fucking terrifying. Like he becomes scarier and scarier the more you get to see his personality come out, which is rare for slashers. And him equating like being drilled to death with sex is also super disturbing. The fact that he's telling her, you know, you want it. You'll like it. He's not talking about fucking her. He's talking about drilling her to death. I mean, it's quite disturbing like i said but you know you get valerie badass valerie comes charging up the basement stairs with this fucking machete and i love the fact that the minute this killer sees sees her coming up chasing him with the machete he takes off i mean she literally chases him into the backyard well and i like that she's got to run across the whole fucking living room she just busts open the door like a crazy woman with this machete just thrashing it in front of her like she comes out on a mission and she is not letting anything get between her and this fucking guy. And he realizes that this woman is going to fuck him up. Like he, he runs from her because he doesn't have time to turn that fucking drill on. And this girl's got a machete half the size of his fucking torso. And I love that out of all the characters that Valerie's the one to be like, fuck this. I'm grabbing this by the balls and I'm fucking taking control and take a charge here. Um, and it makes for such a satisfying conclusion oh this conclusion is great it's great i mean she chases him out to the backyard and you know she does not fucking waste any time and this is where she very symbolically demasculates him right she cuts off she hits the drill bit with the machete and cuts the bit in half and it falls into the pool so very very symbolic gesture by her but not only that then she proceeds to fucking chop his hand off oh my god it's such a good effect very graphically and he's just screaming and his hand falls on the floor and he's like i'll kill you and he's like coming at her with his other hand like gonna choke her and she wastes no time and she fucking slices his stomach open with the fucking machete and he falls back into the pool and of course it's it's i always like when you get like a pool involved in a death scene because i love seeing like the blood in the water mix it's it's really effective as it is in this particular scene and you know, she throws the machete down and Courtney comes out of hiding and gives her a hug. And is like, I love you. And as they're hugging, we see the stump emerge from the pool. 
And then the other hand, and the killer climbs out of the pool and fucking attacks at full speed. He is a man on a mission. He's fucking screaming. I'm going to kill you. And poor uh, Courtney tries to jump on his back and he slaps her, knocks her to the ground. Trish comes running out of the fucking house like a banshee holding a butcher's knife and tries to stab him and he slaps her away. Trish can't get anything done. I love I love the dedication, but she is not really capable of lending much help. No, no. So she's knocked to the ground and now the killer proceeds to like literally lurch on top of Valerie and she is smart enough to grab the machete at the right moment and hold it straight out above her. So when the killer lands, he lands on the fucking machete and it goes through his body impaling him comes out of his fucking back. He spits blood everywhere and all the girls are just fucking screaming bloody murder, but he is, he's done. He's dead. He's on the ground machete through him. No hand stomach sliced open. The girls are all going through their shit, you know, screaming bloody murder, uh, Courtney's just staring off into space now because she's like, what the fuck? And then we hear sirens in the distance. Finally, somebody fucking called the police after hearing this drill so many times. And the film ends. That's the slumber party massacre. I, the ending is so fucking satisfying. I love this ending. Probably one of my favorite slasher endings. Oh, I mean, the finale in this film is is truly... Um, uh, one of the finest conclusions to anything that falls within the slasher genre, especially for a film that's relatively like overall fairly simple. Um, And you really don't go into this expecting a whole lot. As this really starts to build, you become more and more impressed. And it's because you come in with kind of humble, simplistic expectations that you leave this movie. Like if you're looking for a slasher experience, you you leave this film, I, I think, immensely satisfied or at least i do um i really just forgot i mean a how enjoyable this film is but also be like how truly great some of the kills are like it has some of the better kills of the era and and especially the way they take out the killer because this is not a killer that is really capable of coming back like this is not he's not fantastical you know he's not going to be michael myers five movies later with the, the curse of thorn bringing this guy back with his goddamn power drill. No, like this is a, a very much a flesh and bone human man who is cuckoo batshit crazy. And these girls manage to overpower him and get the best of him. And, and yes, they're mentally scarred for the rest of their fucking lives. Um, but these three girls having made it, I almost wish more of them would have made it because I like a lot of the girls in this movie, but the fact that we do get three survivors, I, I feel satisfied with who made it. And uh, through the course of the film, even Trish, for being somewhat incompetent for the last 10 minutes of the movie, Trish was never really a bitchy character. She never made shitty decisions. She was thoughtful enough to try to invite Valerie to the party, you know? So, so the fact that she and Valerie and Valerie's sister all made it, I'm, I'm cool with that. I like these characters. I think they deserve to survive. For sure. There was enough death scenes in the film to satiate me as a slasher fan. So I didn't need to see like Valerie or Trish die or even the sisters as annoying as she is. I'm trying to remember in the sequel, like I said, the sequel, the Courtney character returns. And I think don't kill me because I haven't seen the sequel forever. And I know people adore the sequel. I watched it and thought it was stupid as shit, but I, I, it could be worth a revisit. But I think it's mentioned like by the Courtney character that that her sister Valerie is like now in a, an asylum. She's been in an asylum since it's happened. Um, so you do get a little bit of like 
at least updating on what like happens to the characters in part two and part of like in part two, part of Courtney's trauma for what happened in this particular film is what causes the manifestation of the new driller killer in the sequel. Like I said, I haven't seen the sequel forever. I thought it was stupid. Maybe I need to watch it again with a different mindset because I know it's more like tongue in cheek stuff, but, uh, but at least they address it in the sequel. And then part three goes a totally different direction. It's not connected to the first two at all, which I actually like part three. I know a lot of people hate it, but it's, it's, I mean, this is its own little franchise. When you consider like slumber party massacre two, three, and then there's like, I think there was a fourth one, but they called it something else. I mean, it's a whole little universe here. And it's, but it's a film that, you know, to me, it really like encapsulates everything that is fun and great about an 80s slasher film. To me, it's almost like a perfect slasher film and a perfect representation of what the 80s were about in terms of slasher films. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, more than anything, it's it's one of the most fun slashers of the era. Um, it, it's the perfect balance between character development and uh, irrational gore. It gives you a killer that really doesn't feel like he's a ripoff of any of the other killers from the era. You know, in a time when every killer that was coming out kind of felt like he was a different take on someone who came before him, th- this character doesn't feel like that. Like, he feels like he's very much his own fleshed out developed personality and and doesn't feel like he's really ripping anything off and even though there's shots in the movie that feel very halloween there's a few follow shots there that look just straight out of halloween there's moments we've seen before like he's watching through the the window when he cuts the phone wire you know and moments like that that you you've seen this done in other movies but it still feels fresh. It feels like its own thing. It doesn't feel like it's totally jipping off anything else. And I think a big reason for that is truthfully kind of circling back around to the fact that this was written, you know, and directed, crafted by women. Like there is something about the female eye. There's something about a, a woman writing for a woman that I think just translates differently. And I think, you know, much like in Halloween where you had Deborah Hill handle a lot of the dialogue for the girls and help them develop those characters. And you saw that translate very well for that film. I think you see that here as well. I think you see the female touch coming through here and you don't end up with, you know, very two dimensional female characters. What you get is very three dimensional. It's very, it's surprisingly uh, developed and, and they have uh, quirks and, and traits to them that, uh, definitely seems like it was just more thought out in the developmental stages. And that really, uh, shines through here. And and because of that, I love the characters in this film. I love what happens to them. I'm sad when they die. I'm impressed when they're killed because the effects are always so great. This movie really de- delivers across the board. I, I really think that this is, like you said, it's like a pinnacle example of what an 80s slasher film should deliver. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, check out the remake. It's not bad. It's not bad. Like I said, it takes a really weird route, but I think you'd get a kick out of all of the little nods to to this film that the remake uh, it manages to pull off and still seem like it's fresh and more of like a, a reimagining than a, a straight up remake. I think you'll get a kick out of it. So check it out. And guys, let us know your thoughts on the slumber party massacre where our episode is nearly twice as long as the movie itself. We wanted to give you a, a, a nice so kind of send off for the month of, of May, because as you know, Roger will not be joining us in June. So you get two hours of us speaking about Slumber Party Massacre, which we know, guys, it's a great film. Let us know your thoughts on it. Yeah, so with the Patreon stuff coming up for June, just a heads up, I, I will probably be handling 
most of it myself, which is a little bit of a terrifying thought. So, you know, the top three or top five and in, in the talking bodies might just be me by myself. And then I might throw in a surprise for a full length episode, but it's worth it because Roger is doing something extremely, extremely awesome and important. He, he's, he's filming meat and we all want to wish him the best of luck with that. So yeah. Well, thank you so much, Troy. And I will say like the title we picked for this specific Patreon episode, like really this should have been a, a main feed episode because this is a title that a lot of people love. And we wanted to specifically give you guys something awesome specifically for the Patreon. This is not a throwaway episode. Troy and I both very much very much enjoy this movie. So uh, we wanted to leave you with something great before we set off into June because I will be gone, but I will be back soon and we will all celebrate my birth month. July will be all about Roger. I promise. (laughs) No, Roger is 100% right. This has been on my main feed episode list for a long time, basically since I started the podcast and we wanted to give it to you, you guys specifically now because yeah, because Rogers is is not going to be with us for the month of June. So you go like out I'm with some. Passing on. It's uh, I know. I'm you are. But for July, when you come back, Roger, you better have some great picks, and we're going to get right back into it. You're going to be refreshed. You better have some great picks for July. But guys, thank you, thank you, thank you, as always. Thank you for for being um, patrons and let us know your thoughts on this episode and on the film itself. Would you like to see us cover? The sequel, part two or part three, let us know that as well. Give us some fodder for possible future episodes. But with that, guys, good night. Good night.